0: I want to invite you to please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. If you have a Bible with you, that'd be great. If you need one, there should be a hardcover one in front of you. There'll be words on a screen in a moment as well. And as you're turning there, I just want to just want to say what a gift it is to be a part of a, a church community. In uh, in talking with read the last number of days about the the basics of what he wanted to to say or what he was thinking about approaching baptism the fact that he immediately insisted that he wanted to mention that he had heard about Jesus from the community of people at our church was a gift to me and um, I'm just grateful thank you thank you for all the times that you served or high-fived or fist bumped or prayed or taught a Sunday school class or were a part of different ministry or mission things that we did or came through our home or asked us how we were doing it is a it's a blessing to see, uh, to see that as a, as a part of what you do as a parent when you pray for your kid uh, over and over again. So anyway, thank you for that. It's a, a blessing to be here. I hope that I could be of help to you, a benefit to you over the next number of moments as we consider Matthew chapter 1 together. The reason we're reading Matthew chapter 1, uh, we just started looking at the book of Matthew together as a church last week. And we are considering a birth narrative because it is Advent season It's a time of year when we look at and remember again and stir ourselves in awe at the miracle of the birth of Jesus Christ that the Son condescended into our midst to save us from our sins. In a moment, I'm going to read, beginning in the 18th verse, down through verse 25, but one of the things that we want to consider as we read it is that God has been kind to us to give us not one, not two, not three, but four Perspectives on this story of the coming of Jesus Christ and who he is in our midst. Matthew is the first of the Gospels, but it says the Gospel according to Matthew because this one bit of good news has been given to us from four different angles and then is rejoiced in really through all of the Bible. But these specific narratives concerning the Gospels have been given to us from different perspectives and angles. Which I believe is a good thing, because things that are important often need to be considered from many angles. I don't know about you, but a couple of weeks ago with my in-laws, we did over Thanksgiving what people ought to do over Thanksgiving, and that is we ate copious amounts of food and we watched tons of football, American football. We watched some soccer too. But one of the things that struck me as we were watching so much football is the number of times that things like instant replay came into view, where the refs didn't quite get it right. And these are usually the most important and pivotal moments of the whole game. So I can still recall the times when my brother-in-laws stand up from their seats, or they wander back from the kitchen, and they're pacing, and they're very animated. I can remember specifically one brother-in-law saying over and over again, how do you not have an angle of that? How do you not have that perspective? How do you you not have a camera on the goal line? Because it's extremely important. When you're watching sports, it's pivotal. Did the ball cross the plane of the goal line or not? Was it targeting or not? Did the clock stop or not? Inbounds or out of bounds? Pass interference or not? Pass interference. First down or no first down? And in order to help solve some of our human frailty in the midst of this, and to get over the fact that 90% of refereeing jobs are filled by partially blind people, say, <laughs> leagues the world over install angles from everywhere, places to see the same pivotal event from different perspectives. Because it turns out, oftentimes, the fullness of the picture is given to us when we get different Angles, And I think that something like that is taking place. This is the most, if not one of the most pivotable, pivotable, this is a pivotal play in the history of mankind. What is taking place and happening in motion here that is being described for us by Matthew is going to be given from a perspective that the Spirit of God knew that we would need. And it is slightly different than the angle that we get from Mark or from Luke or from John. And one of the key things that we're going to look at as we read verse 18 to 25 is that Matthew sees fit. He is the one who gives us this camera angle. How does Joseph respond? That's, that's the angle. The same thing is taking place, but it's as though guy up in balcony seven in the production room, mezzanine four says, camera Joseph now. Now. And what we're going to see, different than Luke, we just read from the Advent story, that Luke focuses very sweetly on Mary and her experience. And we see that she obeys and she ponders things in her heart. But here in Matthew, we have a much more focused perspective on Joseph, who's in the line of David and is going to be a part of telling us this birth announcement. When a baby comes into the world, oftentimes a few months later, you get a, a, a cutest little picture Announcing the birth of. That's what this is. This is a birth announcement. There's no rattles or perfect bassinets here. But it's, it's just as beautiful. And so as I read, I want, to note, I want you to note and think about the perspective of Joseph and how he responds. And then we're also going to look at, over the next couple of weeks, it's really going to be sort of a part one and two-ish into Christmas Eve. These will be the themes that we're looking at as we read these verses. We want to consider three persons... Not just any three persons, the Trinity, the Triune Christmas is what we're getting at. I'm going to focus on a lot this morning. Two names and one mission. And I think that if we get at that, we're going to get at the heart of what this birth narrative means. Three persons, two names, and one mission. So let's begin looking now together. This is the 18th verse of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1:18. 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. I would love to pray with you for just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, please deliver us from the assumption that we know all there is to know concerning this story. I pray that we would not go through the motions that we would not merely pass the time or merely have an academic exercise i pray that we would experience here together taste and see that you are good that your word is living and active we confess these things and so we pray that you would make them real here in our midst god help me to be an encouragement i pray for all who have come and are wrestling exhaustion or difficulty have been sinned against, continue to struggle with sin. I pray, God, for healing and health, for understanding, and you would help us with one mind, one heart, a unity of faith that we would comprehend wondrous and marvelous things from your word. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So this story, the birth narrative story, has three persons, two names, and one Mission. Before we get to focus on three persons, the idea that Christmas is tri-unit nature, we should make sure that we've gone through the story. I said that it has the unique perspective in Matthew of Joseph, and that is, in fact, what we find. Verse 18 opens, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It starts with a, a lens on Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed, but immediately introduces her relationship to Joseph. Before they, immediately Joseph is in view again, She was found to be, Mary is passive and is going to be a part of the story. Verse 18 concerns her greatly, but it changes. And unlike Luke, when the initial miracle of the birth of Jesus Christ coming from the Holy Spirit is announced, it does not shift in perspective to Mary and how she received that, but to her husband. Verse 19 says, and her husband, Joseph. a couple of things we need to introduce or to consider. The first is perhaps to say that we are potentially confused. Who is Joseph again? Oh, well, he's Mary's betrothed. They're not yet married. And someone else says, and who is Joseph again? Oh, well, according to verse 19, that's Mary's husband. And so you might say to yourself, well, which is it? Is Joseph Mary's betrothed or Mary's husband? And because we are far removed from the marital customs of this day and age, the answer to that is something like, Yes, both ish is the way that this works. Well, I guess he's 100 percent he's betrothed. <clears throat> sorry, 100 percent betrothed, but a husband in one particular kind of sense that is different than our modern-day engagement, and that is that they were legally bound. An engagement or a betrothal in this day and age was much more and deeper than present-day engagement. And that's saying something because engagement is full of pressure and misery in our day and age. And yes, I said that. I think that of all the moments of the romantic path, the butterflies of first noticing, the courage necessary in the shaking of first asking, the bliss of spending in sweetness, the dreams of where is this going, the plans, all that kind of stuff, all the way to the years of growing old together and aging wrinkly fingers gripped in loving held hands all of that bliss is interrupted by a period of odd pressure filled misery called engagement maybe misery's too strong and it could be that i was long distance from sarah the entirety of our engagement but I found engagement to be a pressure-packed, pressure-filled sort of odd time. And that I don't, I believe, is no different, except that it's even ramped up further in the story of Mary and Joseph. Joseph would have had all that would, we would have known and felt of engagement pressures. It is very difficult to break off an engagement when you've moved to this place, though not impossible. And in this day and age, it would have been even more difficult because not only were they engaged, but it came with a legally binding contract that Mary was considered to be already married. She was, in many ways, already a wife. She was marked as a wife, and he was marked as a husband, which means that upon hearing this news, Joseph is stirred greatly. One of the things we get from Matthew is that Mary and Joseph, and Joseph specifically here, was not in on the birth scheme. This was not a desire of theirs to gain fame through some sort of story. In fact, he responded the way you would if you were engaged to someone and found them suddenly. I love the wording of the text. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you found them suddenly pregnant and knew it was not you, you would have decisions to make. And so scripture tells us that Joseph is human. He responds the way that you or I would. Secondarily, it says that he is a just human. I believe that's why it means he says, I'm going to divorce her. This is something that needs to be done. He has a sense of right and wrong. He says, this is is what has taken place. Then I'm going to divorce her. He's just, but he is also unwilling to put her to shame. Joseph is a man who, as you would be in a situation like this, is moved by both the desire for justice and moved by his unshaking love and desire for mercy for Mary. So he resolves, he's a just man, to divorce her. He's a just man. But to do so quietly because he knows that she will be the subject of great shame in their culture. In fact, Old Testament law says that someone who is in this position, who has the sin of infidelity, even at this particular moment of legal arrangement, would have been sent off with divorce, and especially as a young woman, she would have been subject the rest of her life to a cycle of shame and vulnerability, likely abject poverty, and perhaps would have found it extremely difficult to ever land in a stable marriage or home again. And as often happens in Especially romantic relationships or family relationships, as well, that in the same moment he receives this news, he is overcome with a kind of grief that wants justice and a kind of undying love and devotion that desires to not treat her poorly. And that is where we find Joseph when he begins to hear the Christmas story. Where were you? When you first heard the Christmas story, it's an interesting thought. Joseph is here considering. He gets his, his phrase, like Mary has this wonderful phrase in Luke, that she pondered these things in her heart. She stored them up and pondered them. Joseph is also a pondering man. In verse 20, he considers these things. And it is in that particular moment that an angel of the Lord comes. An angel of the Lord commanded from on high and comes to him. He comes to him in a dream and desires to say to him, Joseph, I want you to know that it feels like and it seems like everything is wrong and that everything is coming undone, but I want to tell you that in fact everything is beginning to be more right. And eventually, in the midst of this Christmas story, all that is undone will be made whole. And so, the angel of the Lord comes and says, Joseph, son of David, Matthew's continuing his theme of Jesus being in the line, the kingly line of David. He's told, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What an announcement. What a revealing. There's a sense in which what is taking place here in Matthew is a slow unveiling of the will of God from all eternity past. One of the most common words used with gospel in the New Testament is mystery. And the idea of that mystery is that it's something that was once hidden and then a veil is slowly come as though you're, you're like a little kid who just slowly peeks into the gift that you're not yet supposed to open. I don't know how you open gifts. Yeah, you know, there's like usually two kinds of people. There's ferocious, rabid animal. And there is neat, I'm going to use this wrapping paper again kind of person. This is a little bit more like neat, going to use the wrapping paper open again these opening statements joseph is beginning to receive the the first peak underneath the veil of this plan that's been hidden from eternity past and it is this son from the holy spirit that will save people from their sins verse 22 matthew says this has been a plan of the lord from Eternity passed. In fact, he moved by a prophet and pulls Isaiah 7 forward to show that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. It is these two names, Jesus, Emmanuel, that will be the focus of our study over the weeks to come. And Joseph needs to wrestle with what does this mean? And as he's pondering it, something happens in him and he obeys so sweetly the end of verse 23, he's been waking from a dream. He's been told this unthinkable thing. How would you respond when you don't fully understand and it seems too big for you? In verse 24, Matthew just says, boldly and in a kind of raw way, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. There's something so beautiful about raw obedience. Just not the hymning and hawing not the weighing of stakes, not the counting of costs, just the simple trust that says, if God has commanded and said that something's beautiful happening here, I'm in. He just obeys. And so he took his wife and walked with her faithfully in this year of betrothal. And when the son has come again, what's Matthew's lens? Matthew's lens is on the naming of the child from Joseph's perspective, in faithfulness and fulfillment of what was given to him, From the Lord, his name becomes Jesus. That is the birth story from Joseph's perspective. It's going to move here quickly to the coming of the wise men in chapter 2. There's likely months and months and months, if not up to a couple of years that pass over that. But before we get to the second chapter, I want to consider and make sure that we have a full and not an anemic Christmas story. The thing that we should have noticed in the midst of this, I said, is that the story of the birth narrative, Christmas is triune at heart. It is not the story of Jesus being a hero unexpectedly as a rogue mission from heaven, but instead the story of the fruition, the coming about in real time of the greatest play that's ever been called in the history of the world. It is the story of a father who loved and promised and planned before the foundation of the world. The story of a son who in obedience humbles himself and condescends and is born in our midst, and the story of a powerful spirit who hovers and moves and makes possible the impossible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit is the story of Christmas. And what I want to do this morning is to focus on the lesser celebrated persons of the triune God when it comes to Christmas. I'm going to name them sort of affectionately Father Christmas. The true Father Christmas, maybe you could say. And Christmas spirit. Not only what you have after too much eggnog. But Father Christmas and Christmas spirit. And we're going to focus on because I have a... I'm not going to say it raises the level of concern, but perhaps at least an observation that makes me think. And that is that it is possible to tell the story of Christmas and honor Jesus to the exclusion, perhaps even to the the denigrating of God the Father and God the Son. In fact, it's my observation that if you summarize and say that Christianity in any aspect of the work of Jesus is simply and only about Jesus, you run the risk at best of having an anemic understanding of faith and at worst of being downright heretical. So most of us know that there should be an insistus, insistence on Jesus at Christmas time, right? Maybe you've seen it. Do you have the, do you have the what are the mug holder things, the <laughs> coasters? I'm sorry, that's the word. Do you have the coasters? They say Jesus is the reason for the season. Do you have that? Do you got the T-shirt? Do you have the the, pane, the glass that hangs in your window? Do you have the candle? Do you have the cross stitching? You know the phrase, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. This is absolutely true. It's a wonderful thing to say. But I'm going to say something that I think needs to be said, especially this time of the year. And that is this. That Jesus is not the only reason for the season. If it's only Jesus is the reason for the season, then we may have been missing something. We're slightly anemic. And it's okay if you've gone far down the path and you said, no, I get it. I know the spirit. I'm standing against commercialism. You won't see me at Black Friday. I'm praying all morning or whatever it is. If, if you're pressing against it, it's wonderful. I told First Service, if you have the Jesus is the reason for the season tattoo on your leg, I bless you. It's great. But I believe that we ought to say, and one of the church's jobs, especially as we read a story like this, is to remember the Father is the reason for the season. And the Spirit is the reason for the season. There is no delineation and no divergence in the will of the Godhead. It is a triune Christmas at heart. If the Father had not loved his own from the beginning and sovereignly planned to save them from all eternity past, then Christmas would not happen. If the Spirit had not been sent from the Father and hovered and stirred and overshadowed Mary, then Christmas would not happen. And so we should be careful. We should be careful not to tell the Christmas story as the star play of one player who carried the rest of the team on his back. We must not tell the story of Christmas as the unthinkable, surprising, even to the Father and spirit, work of Jesus the Son who sneaks out the window in the dead of night to finally do something about that lost world this picture somehow that Jesus is sitting around and he's watching the events of the Old Testament doing nothing, and then he sees 400 years of silence and it's as though he's just saying to himself, like, I know I could do something if they'd just give me a chance. He's not a young whippersnapper who slowly in the quiet of night makes sure that the Father is snoring and that the Spirit is hovering elsewhere and he opens his window and then just dives in a rogue last-ditch effort to please throw himself onto this humanity that has fallen. It's possible to celebrate Jesus to the exclusion of the true beauty of this play in real time. I sort of slightly denigrated uh, soccer earlier. I said football, you know, American. And I only half meant that. But now I'm going to prove to you how sophisticated I am. One of the most spectacular single-handed plays that I've ever seen was Lionel Messi, He gets the ball and legitimately goes through like eight defenders on a field. You could count. You could figure it out. At a certain point, it seems like they're sending in substitutions just to be owned by him. I'm not sure. My soccer knowledge is limited. I don't know what it means to own someone on a soccer pitch. It's it's a pitch, though. I think I know that. But everyone is just falling all over everyone. And it's astounding. I don't know much about soccer. I played it only a little bit. But I can watch that and I can say, wow, the rest of the team isn't even necessary. This is a star that transcends the field. And at a certain point, he just said, no, thank you. I want to score. That is extremely different than something like the Netherlands when they score against the U.S. men's team in the World Cup. I'm watching this game. And I see what seems like 417 passes from every right and left foot of every male over the age of 10 in the country of the Netherlands take place, bringing about this culmination. By the time the guy kicks the ball into the net, you could have, you, you would, you've you been just growing with this fear, like you know what's coming. It is a team effort. I heard one of the commentators and one of the guys that I was with watching it say, that's one of the best team goals I've ever seen in my whole life. And I was like, yeah, totally. It was. Because it was amazing. I don't know what it's like in reference to the rest of the goals in soccer. The point is is that it was a team effort. And if you missed that, imagine if after all of this buildup through the time, everything's going back and forth and everyone's right foot and left foot and chest and head is hitting the ball. And it finally goes, and the guy that puts it in, imagine if all that is said afterward is, can you believe that guy and the way that he kicked it in the net? That was, uh, that was unreal. What you would, you'd be saying something truthful, but you would have missed the beauty of the entire buildup of the moment. You would have denigrated the work of the team in getting this accomplished. And my goal this morning is to help us not celebrate Christmas as a messy level star play by Jesus, and it's so good that he finally did something, because the Father and Spirit were helpless otherwise, or worse than that, they were reluctant otherwise. No, my purpose or my focus this morning would be to say, let's grow in our appreciation and love of Christmas, to see that the birth of the Son, which is amazing... Jesus cannot, it cannot be overstated the glory of the Son of God in his humility and coming in the flesh. It cannot be overstated, but let's not overstate it to the neglect of the will of the Father and the work of the Spirit in bringing this about. So Christmas is ultimately about the Father willing and promising from all eternity past. Christmas is about the Spirit powering and moving and bringing about possible things from impossible things. And Christmas is about a son who condescends in obedience and humble service to his Father. What I want to do is point out the ways that this passage itself celebrates the work of the Father in Christmas. And then more than that, listen to the words of Jesus and the way that he deflects praise we see the work of the Father, I believe, all over the passage that we already read. It is the Father who has foretold and prophesied that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. This Father is the same Lord Yahweh who gave words to Isaiah and told him to speak hope and life into the world. It is this father who sends an angel commissioned from heaven to intercept joseph at the moment that he's about to reject the plan of god it is the father who is superintending and watching to make sure that joseph understands the play it is the father who commands and sends the son saying i have loved with a deep and an abiding and a faithful affection, those who are my own, and they will not be lost, but will be redeemed. It's the Father who sends. And this celebration of the work of the Father is at the heart of Christmas. More than that, it's at the heart of the ministry and the life of Jesus himself. Jesus constantly points back to the other members of the team. If he receives praise... He nearly universally says, have you considered the work of my father? Do you know that I'm only doing what he says? Do you know how amazing he is? Here's an example. John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. In John chapter 5, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So if the Son is drawing near, and if the Son is in humility coming to save, and if the Son is offering Himself in forgiveness of sins, what does He say is actually happening? Well, He's only doing and can only do what the Father does. It means that it's the Father who is drawing near. It is the Father who is offering redemption. It is the Father who is desirous to forgive. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus says, when you consider what I've accomplished, look to the Father, He goes on in verse 20. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. How does the son know and what does it mean for him to partake in this plan of redemption? The son says, oh, I share this plan with my father. He showed me and we share together this divine will in redemption. Greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Verse 21 of John 5. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says clearly, it is the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not commit into judgment, but has passed from death. To life. Jesus places salvation. What does it mean to have eternal life? It's to believe the Father has sent the Son. To see in the story of the birth narrative, not only the wonderful all-star play of Christ, which is amazing, but to see the will of the Father from all eternity past, desiring to reveal His love and His redeeming affection on those whom He has set His forever love. Why did Christmas happen? That's the question. Why did Christmas happen? Jesus is the reason for the season, yes. But the Father is the reason for the season. Christmas happened because there is a Father who in His heart seeing a lost world and knowing the effects of the right and and just punishment of sin would not allow in His love those who have sinned to be forever separated from Him but instead desired to come and draw near and to draw them back to his table. That's the love of the Father at Christmas. And it can be celebrated just as deeply as all the pictures of Jesus and his humility and sweetness as a baby. Father Christmas is real. That's a kind of cheesy way to end that little section, but I, it's just never been more true. I want to talk as well. I was going to say secondarily, we've considered Jesus. We know the work of the Father, so tertiarily, if that's a word. Let's consider the spirit of Christmas, the Christmas spirit, and that is this reality. Why did Christmas happen? Why does Jesus come? How does it work? Because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the reason for this season. Twice... In the beginning of this section we read in Matthew chapter 18, it tells us that Mary had been found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is not a throwaway word. This is the person of God bringing about the fact that Mary is with child. Joseph hears and realizes that the child conceived in Mary is from, that's the way the Bible reads it, from the Holy Spirit spirit. Luke gives us the same account from slightly different wording. In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, which was read already this morning for Advent, the angel answers her that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Remember she asked the question? What did she ask the question? How will this happen? No one says, oh you haven't seen Jesus. He's like Messi with a soccer ball. He can just do it all himself. How will this happen, Mary says? Well, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's what it says in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Slightly different wording. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is the reason for the season. And in the coming of the Son of God, we see, like the Father revealing his heart in a way that was hidden in eternity past... The work of the Spirit is once again put on display. It is the Spirit that is the life-giving creative power of God. Where and when God speaks, the Spirit moves to bring life. Same phrasing, same idea. You should be thinking about what hap- happens with Mary in the same way you think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Prior, Mary's womb was barren and void. And then like this passage in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It is the power of God's Spirit that takes His desire to be revealed into the world. When a word is spoken, the Spirit rushes in power to give life and creation. And without that work of the Spirit... There is no Christmas story. The Spirit moves in Mary to bring life where there was barrenness. To do the impossible made possible. God's power overshadows her. This, this picture is, that's a way to live. I think if I, if I skip to the end, if I give a little spoiler for where we're heading here, this is an image that is an unbelievable image. We should all desire to be this. What marks your life? Well, I am overshadowed by the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. Everything else about me, it's it's dimmed in comparison to being overshadowed and overwhelmed by the presence and power of the life-giving Spirit of God. And without this Spirit, there's no Christmas. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be a Holy Spirit- wooden sort of lifeless religious person and get the point of Christmas. If Christmas doesn't get a little charismatic, we've missed it. Because Christmas is just a story. If God the Father in his love and his desire to reveal his redeeming heart doesn't send the spirit to hover and move and overshadow Mary, there's no life. And you can have all the mechanics of a good story, but if the Spirit of God doesn't come and give life, then you have nothing. Now, in the same way that Jesus and the rest of his ministry shows us the importance of the Holy Spirit, the rest of the story shows the importance of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have one instance with Elizabeth, who Mary goes to visit. Again, we heard that this morning. And then I'm going to show you a few instances of the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. The first one, let's just rehearse it again. It starts in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. I'm just going to pause there just for a second. I know we're going to keep reading. Imagine what Elizabeth is thinking. Mary's voice fills the room. Her presence comes into their home and the baby jungle gymming it up. Just jumping with madness. The word leaped is an interesting one. I've seen baby feet tap against bellies, but I've rarely ever heard a woman say, let me tell you, the child about leaped out of my stomach. So the question there becomes what does Elizabeth think is happening? How does she explain this circumstance? It can only be explained that something new and powerful and possible that was impossible is taking place. And so Luke records it as this. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. It was the Holy Spirit's presence with Mary that filled their home. It was the Holy Spirit's presence with Mary that filled Elizabeth. It was the Holy Spirit's presence with Mary that allowed her to exclaim with a loud cry, Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Here's the reality. You will never, ever, ever bless Jesus. The Son will be nothing to you unless the Spirit of God gives you life to exclaim, Blessed is this Child, Jesus will be mere religious tradition. Jesus will be mere superstition, save that the Holy Spirit overshadows you. That is what is being shown here. Why did Christmas happen? How did it all work? What took place? Well, it could be simply boiled down to this. The Spirit of God was moving in a way that had never been seen. The play had been called. The Father was revealing. The Son was humbling Himself and coming. And in the midst of it all, the Spirit moving in power so that when people interacted with this story, they said, I'm changed. Something's happening in me. There's life where there was death. That is the story of Christmas. And this Holy Spirit doesn't slow down. He doesn't just do one job. It's not like the Holy Spirit had been waiting from eternity past, just twiddling his thumbs, just waiting for his call. Like me in sixth grade keyboard, I spent the whole two hours, I pressed one button twice. I just sat there twiddling my thumbs, she pointed at me, ding, another 35 minutes, ding, over, I'm out. I also quit the next day and I was gone. The work of the Spirit of God is not like that. He didn't wait from eternity past and now they're like, okay, ready. He plays his one hand bell, he comes and He makes the Son come and then He's out. We must read the rest of our Bibles through the lens of, if the Holy Spirit doesn't move, nothing happens. The Spirit is the one that ministers to Jesus and strengthens Him for ministry. You ever thought about this? How did Jesus live a perfectly righteous life? How did Jesus heal and cast out demons? Well, He submitted Himself to the will of the Father... By the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't come if not for the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus does not live a righteous life if not for the power of the Holy Spirit. The entire endeavor, the whole play falls apart if the Father is not planning and promising and upholding, and the Spirit is not moving and empowering. I'm gonna give you just a few examples. Again, we're gonna study Luke, we're gonna be in the baptism, which we're gonna be in a second in the beginning of February, I think. So we're going to study Matthew. I'm going to pull from Luke then now so you don't feel cheated. Luke chapter 3. Note the presence. This is some 30 years later. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well Pleased. How do you explain the ministry of Jesus? Well, you explain it as a loving, pleased father and a powerful, descending, resting, moving spirit. The ministry of Jesus is kicked off by the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the same story. The life of Jesus is kicked off by the presence of the Holy Spirit. His ministry kicked off by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Then Luke chapter 4, just one chapter later, It says, Jesus now moves through the world in a different kind of way. And Jesus, it says in verse 1, comma, full of the Holy Spirit. Returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. What's being communicated is this. All that Jesus did, the way that he enacted the will of the Father, was to be moved by the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 of the same passage. Jesus goes out in the wilderness. You know, he's tempted by Satan there. And in verse 14, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. It seems very shortly after, perhaps even a few days, verse 16 of Luke chapter 4, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. He went to read the Advent reading at church. That's what he did. And as was his custom, he went there. Sorry, he stood up to read. I got... Back of verse, verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. What would you say? If you were Jesus, what would you say? You've waited 30 years. You know the plan of the Father. You've been faithful this whole time. You just met the devil himself in the desert. You have the Spirit of God who had descended upon you. You are now walking in the fullness of power, obedient to your Father setting out on your mission and you finally want all your hometown bros to know who you are. What do you say? He says, "Give me the scroll, the one from Isaiah." Yeah, that's it. And he says this in verse 18. "The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me." That's the thing that marks Jesus. This spirit has anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent him to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight to the blind of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The thing that marked Jesus, the thing that made Jesus Jesus, was his faithful obedience to the will of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of all the wonderful things that you could say concerning Jesus. What was he like? He was perfectly holy. What did he say? He was wise beyond all, um, all... possible expectation. He was powerful. He could cast out demons. He was gentle. You know, especially in this time, we we really revel in and delight in the gentleness of Jesus. Sleeping babe in cloths there lie. Ere you ain't seen a child who don't cry. That's the country folk version of the song I made up, but we're going to talk about this over and over again, right? If you interacted with Jesus, there would be words that you would say about him. And I think what the Bible's trying to say is this. What you experience in Jesus is not mere kindness. It's not mere wisdom. It's not mere power. It's not mere gentleness. It's God himself. What you taste and see when you interact with Jesus is the spirit of God. And without that spirit... Christmas doesn't happen. The ministry of Jesus doesn't happen. Our hope doesn't happen. In fact, we are hopeless in this world. So at Christmas time, yes, let's celebrate Jesus. Come up with every adjective possible. Put the nativity out. Sing the songs. Rejoice in the Son of God. He cannot be exalted enough, and it's where all of history is headed. And at the same time, pause and rest in the love of a father who loved you before the foundation of the world. Wonder at a father who promised and then planned and was faithful through to bring it to end, this plan to love you and call you back to his family. And this Christmas, where you feel death and where you think there is impossible tasks ahead, where there is barrenness, where there is difficulty, say to yourself, I have the spirit of Jesus dwelling with me. He's the same today as he was then. He's alive, he's present, he's with us. When you interact with people who come into your midst and you desire to give them the spirit of Christmas, don't give them mere kindness, mere generosity, mere love. Yes, give them those things. But pray and say, God, help me to give those things through the power of the spirit. It turns out that if we don't have that same spirit, then we've missed the whole point of this enterprise. You know that Jesus says, and this sounds amazing. It was amazing when he said it then. It sounds amazing now. You know the one area where you have to be like Jesus? There's lots we're just going to miss it. I'm not going to cast out demons like him. I certainly can't be witty like him. against the, I'll be, I'm not as courageous as him in the face of the religious leaders around him. Not as kind. Not as insightful. You know the one way you have to be like Jesus without fail? One of the ways? You just have to be born like him. You have to be born like Jesus. That's the story of Christmas. John chapter 3, that's his whole point. He's talking with Nicodemus. Jesus answers him in verse 5 because this is what happened. He said this once and Nicodemus said, Huh? That's the one thing I can't do like Jesus. I don't know if you remember this. There's a virgin and the hovering of the Spirit. I can't do that. And Jesus says this in verse 5 of John 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I don't want to assume this morning that you know what the Christmas birth narrative is about. I think ultimately, the birth narrative is a call. It is a beckon call to all who have ears to hear, all who have eyes to see the right angle and perspective. It is a clarion, loving call of a father saying, come home. It is an older brother going before us and defeating all the enemies. He's beating the hardest levels of the game. He's saying, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to set up your seat. I'm putting the thing for you there. I'm going to show you how to do this. And then ultimately, it is a call to submit yourself to being born of the Spirit in the same way that this miraculous birth took place in Matthew chapter 1. How could it be that a virgin would be with child? Well, the power of the Spirit. And you and I must say this. How could it be that a sinner someone under the wrath of God, could ever be set free? How could it be that someone who was born of flesh and of death in a fallen world could ever experience life and have hope eternal? The answer is, well, you're going to be born of the Spirit. So this Christmas, let's be triune. Everywhere we turn, in the Father, in the face of the Son, and in the Spirit of God, we have hope and rejoicing. My desire is that you are so united to Jesus, that you would say with him, oh, I see the Father. I, I desire to walk, walk with the Father and love the Father. And that you would say, when I interacted with Jesus, I sensed the Spirit, he's moved in me. If you don't say that, then we're just telling sweet stories. That's the reality. We're just telling sweet stories.